welcome to day 174 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 11.14 through 12.24, and then Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 41. Okay, in 1 Kings, yesterday we began to read a little bit about the adversity that the Lord began to uh, raise up against Solomon for his sin, from turning to from the Lord to foreign gods in his latter years, largely under the influence of his many foreign wives who had come in and um, he had uh, built shrines to their deities as well, uh, which drew his heart away from God. Today, uh, we see what exactly that adversity looks like. So uh, it comes basically in three forms, and they're all um, personified by one individual. So the first is an adversary by the name of Hadad the Edomite, and he is of the royal house of Edom. And way back in Second Samuel 8, if you can remember that far, uh, th- this is where we read about uh, David's various uh, relations with the uh, kingdoms around him and his, some of his wars, some of the kingdoms that became subject to him. And in verse 13, we find about um, a war with Edom. And uh, what the text tells us is 18,000 were slain in the Valley of Salt. And uh, Joab being the commander of David's army at that time. And then David placed various military garrisons in Edom. And uh, this, this individual... Hadad was taken when he was a little child by several of his father's servants to the land of Egypt. And the Pharaoh there treated him very kindly, giving him a house, assigning him an allowance of food and his own land, and even gives um, one of his wife's sisters to him as a bride. And uh, they have a son who is raised in Pharaoh's house, kind of reminiscent to Moses' upbringing in that way. And when Hadad learns of David's death, he requests leave that he can go back to Edom. And although Pharaoh is kind of reluctant to do that, wants him to stay, obviously feels very fondly towards him. What have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? He asks him. Um, He, uh, his request, Hadad's request prevails and he goes back. And that's what we're told about about him. Uh, next up is Rezin, the son of Eliada. Um, and he is a servant of Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah, who is a, which is an Aramean city-state that David had defeated. Hadad Ezer had um, uh, basically formed a large coalition, um, perhaps of mercenaries and uh, other antagonistic forces and they had fought against David and David had beat them he had defeated them and uh, sometime during this time he had fled from his master um, to safety and he becomes a leader of a marauding band and uh, ends up going into Damascus where he is made the king of Damascus again a very prominent Aramean city and he becomes also an an adversary uh, for Solomon, uh, as Adad did. The third one, which is probably the most significant in terms of its 
well, definitely the most significant in terms of its historical um, reverberations, is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who is an Ephraimite. And once uh, Solomon sees his, um, his abilities, he gives him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph, um, which is a little bit jarring since we, uh, we read, uh, I believe it was yesterday, that Solomon had not made slaves out of um, out of out of actual Israelites that he he tended to do that to the indigenous Canaanites who were still in the land, um, and it's a little unclear. This may signal a change in policy, or there may be <clears throat> a difference between the type of corvée labor uh, between the Canaanites and between um, the Israelites who were drafted to do this. It's a little unclear how to fit these together. Although uh, verses like First Kings uh, nine twenty. Uh, indicates chief officers who are over Solomon's work, who have charge over the people, uh, a total of 550 of them, who have charge over the people who carry out the work. And so, um, you know, you definitely have hints that there was a little bit more going on than just giving Israel a pass and not requiring them to support his building projects. So this is the guy who's in charge of the forced labor of of the house of Joseph, Ephraim, of course, being one of the two main Joseph tribes, and um, he is outside of Jerusalem, as he's one of one of Solomon's officials here, and a prophet named Ahijah meets him in the field, or on the road, and uh, Ahijah is dressed in a new garment, um, symbolizing, which will symbolize Israel, the 12 tribes, and um, uh, two of them are alone in the open country. So it's just Ahijah and Jeroboam. And Ahijah then tears up his own garment into 12 pieces and says to Jeroboam, take 10 of these, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. Uh, But for David, he shall have one tribe, uh, for the sake of my servant uh, David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I've chosen out of the tribes of Israel. So the house of David is about to lose 10 tribes and uh, he alone will remain. Uh, now, this is a little bit, it's a little bit tricky to figure out exactly um, how to order the tribes in this. So um, I think the um, kind of the 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 ideal way like the big picture way to look at it is uh, the Levites do not have a land of their own or, and are kind of all over the place. And so Judah and then Levi, right, um, are accounted for. And then the other 10 will belong to Jeroboam and to his house that is about to be established. Um, uh, the, however, um, there's two things to keep in mind. Number one, uh, the tribe of Simeon, if you have a map in your Bible or if you have a Bible atlas or Google handy or something, and you look at a map of the 12 tribes, Simeon is completely surrounded by Judah. Um, this is its its tribal allotment. And so, um, uh, so it's possible, some have suggested, that Simeon is counted here as being um, kind of a, uh, a part of Joseph, a part of... Um, uh, Judah, rather. And um, one might come to that impression, but later on in this, when um, war breaks out between them, a brief war, or actually kind of like the the beginning stages of war, 
Uh, it is Judah and Benjamin together, Benjamin being the other southern tribe that's with David. So um, what do we make of Simeon and what do we make of Benjamin here is like the big question. And I think a, um, an interesting clue to the Simeon question actually comes to us in the book of Second Chronicles, Chronicles being um, another telling of the history of Israel. And here we have a part of the account of the, of the reign of King Asa, who is actually um, going to be Solomon's grandson. So it's not even that far off from this time. And at this time, we see that um, uh, there are, uh, he, he is, it says he gathered all Judah and Benjamin. So that's to be expected, right? Those, the two Southern tribes who even here in first Kings are working in concert together. And, um, so he's going to gather them and and as well as those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. So the suggestion has been made that Simeon had become displaced and um, uh, which which actually is in line with uh, with um, something we read in Genesis 49. So Genesis 49, uh, you might recall is Jacob, um, uh, essentially, like giving like future destinies to all twelve of his tri- uh, to all twelve of his sons, and because Simeon and Levi had slaughtered Shechem, they are given, I suppose we could say, no sure in heaven inheritance, and um, and part of what uh, is is said to them for for taking matters into their own hands and, and, and killing this, the inhabitants of the city in verse seven, there is cursed be their anger. That is Simeon and Levi for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. Um, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So that seems to be what's going on there with, with, um, Simeon. And then as for Benjamin, well, Benjamin is so close to the much more powerful, tribe of Judah now that often it gets pulled into Judah's orbit. And so functionally, um, for a a good amount of Israel's history, um, Simeon is effectively part of Judah, even though technically it is part of the 10 tribes that have been torn away uh, from the house of David. So this is the prophecy of Ahijah. And because of all this, um, Solomon seeks to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam then goes and flees to whom the Bible calls Shishak, who is known in Egyptian as Shashank. And this will not be the last time that we read about him in the books of the kings of Israel. Um, so then we get the account of the end of Solomon's life, um, the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom. Are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? Uh, we've seen uh, reference to pre-sources, um, other other written sources for information that we find in the Bible, which uh, that doesn't explicitly say that this is what this is, but um, uh, you know I think this is a plausible candidate for that type of thing. And um, and the total time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. We're told, um, and then he sleeps with his fathers, which is the standard expression for uh, for dying uh, and is buried in the city of David, his father. And the next king we are introduced to is Rehoboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son, and he goes to Shechem to be made king. 
Shechem is a very important northern Israel site. This is where Joshua, for example, in Joshua 24, uh, led Israel in a covenant renewal ceremony. And he's going to be made king. And Jeroboam in Egypt receives words of this. And so he returns back. And um, uh, by the time we get to verse 3, he is um, seems to be at the head of all the assembly of Israel, or at least with them. And their concern is with how Rehoboam is going to reign. They say, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Um, so, of course, this is referring to Solomon's ambitious building projects and the way in which this sultan-like lifestyle that Solomon had adopted for himself as king, which is kind of a good thing in a sense, right? Because it shows the prosperity that the Lord is willing to bless his people with, but it also is extremely, extremely um, prone to corruption. And uh, one of the big compromises that that kind of lifestyle incurs is what we have seen, right? This, this massive levy on all the land in order to maintain this, in order to go bigger and better. And they don't want this anymore. And they have the opportunity to see, well, what is, you know, what is Rehoboam going to do about this? And if indeed you, Rehoboam, lighten our load, then we will be happy to serve you. Of course, they don't say what will happen if he does not. And so Rehoboam sends them away for three days to consider this. And he first takes counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father. And here I think we have a picture of wisdom. Remember, wisdom normally transmitted from father to son. Um, wisdom is not only gained through just reading wisdom literature and stuff like that and, and hearing wise things and thinking, but it's actually something that's refined over time. And if you listen to those who come before you, then you can... Um, then you could benefit from their life experience, which is, which is often, um, which is often presented as wisdom. And so he asks them, "How do you, old men who stood with my father, advise me?" Because they've seen the reign of Solomon, they know it intimately, and they know the problems that it caused. And so they tell him, "If you will be a servant to this people, so this is the ideal way." To lead a people is to be their servant. This is uh, the model of what we call servant leadership being asserted. Um, then if you do that, if you're a servant to them, then they will be your servants forever. But, um, um, and so, you know, basically acknowledge their point and you don't need to live like your father did. Um, and you certainly don't need to live more lavishly than your father did. And then, but then he takes counsel with the young men, those who had grown up with him and, and who stood before him. And, um, and they, of course, lack this wisdom. And so he asks, what do you advise? And their, their essential advice to him is go for it. Um, you've got the, you have the kingship in your hand. You have the opportunity to do what you want. So let's make this bigger and better than even your father's kingdom. And so the way that he, the, the way that this is put is, my little finger is thicker than your father's thighs. So the, 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 the smallest appendage on me 
is bigger than the the largest appendage on my father. And um, what this means is, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Uh, This disciplining with whips might be another reference to a form of uh, corvée labor, uh, or at least semi-slavery that he that that Solomon had had um, had done. Uh, I might also add too that Jeroboam was just the guy to um, to know what exactly Solomon's policies were. He's kind of the guy to lead the people against this because recall that he himself was in charge of the fault of the forced labor of the house of Ephraim. Um, or uh, the house of Joseph, which may also have included Manasseh. So, um, so uh, Jeroboam and all the people come to Rehoboam the third day, and the king answered, uh, forsaking all the counsel that the old men had given and taking the counsel of the young men, and he tells them exactly what they had told him to say. And, um, uh, and uh, verse 15 is very interesting. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by Yahweh that he might fulfill his word, which Yahweh spoke by Ahijah the prophet to Jeroboam the son of Nebuch. And um, this is a, a very interesting verse in terms of the discussion between God's sovereign will and the will of human beings. So we have human beings um, acting in accordance with their own wills and desires and their own wisdom or lack of it, but we also have God working through this in order to accomplish what he has set forth to do. And so uh, this type of scenario is considered compatibilism, where human beings who are, are morally responsible enough for their actions, and that is uh, compatible with God's sovereign governance of the universe and bringing about what he wills. Um, of course, there's a lot of mystery in that. No surprise there. We're talking about God here. But I think this is a strong verse in support of that kind of view. Um, and um, then the kingdom is divided, okay, as a result. So all Israel sees this, and they say, what portion do we have in David? What inheritance in the son of Jesse? Of course, talking about the Davidic dynasty. To your tents, O Israel, look to your own house, David, so Israel went to their tents. And Rehoboam ends up reigning over the cities of Judah and, um, and attempts to subdue this, uh, this um, mutiny, as it were. And so he sends, he sends his guy, who's over the forced labor, um, Adoram by name, and Israel stones him. The northern tribes stone him. And uh, Rehoboam goes to flee to Jerusalem, and this is uh, viewed, of course, by Rehoboam and his uh, and his sycophants as as rebellion. And so um, you've got the, the the as as Ahijah had had prophesied, the the tribes of the north of the north, that is everything except for Judah. Um, going one way, and the house of David is the only, uh, the house of David only holds control over Judah, the tribe of Judah. So Rehoboam then comes to Jerusalem, 
uh, conscripts also the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, we're told, to actually um, try to put down this rebellion militarily. Um, but um, a prophet there named Shemaiah, the man of God, comes to Rehoboam and um, tells him this. Thus says Yahweh, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. And um, wisely they listen to the word of Yahweh and go home, according to the word of, the, of Yahweh. And from this point on in Israel's history, the people that were the United Kingdom of Israel will now be northern Israel and southern Judah. The kingdoms of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. They are split, never to be joined again. All right, let's go over to Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 22 and go up through verse 41. So the Jerusalem council has made the ruling on what it is that they will require of new Gentile converts to the faith, especially those living in areas where there are is a significant Jewish population in with an eye towards uh, the church's witness to the Jews. And as I said yesterday, the, the idea here is uh, very much likely that they are not, um, uh, that they are attempting to not uh, offend Jewish sensibilities about what Gentiles in their midst are and aren't expected to do. Um, they don't want to uh, mislead anybody by thinking that um, Christians believe that circumcision brings you into the kingdom of God or um, continued adherence to the traditions uh, and, and laws handed down by Moses, that that's what get you in or anything like that. But if we're going to be doing that, if that's the theology we're going to be living by, we want to at least be respectful of those whom we're called to reach, because the gospel is uh, very much uh, for the Jewish people as it is for the Gentiles. And so let's not forget that. So they go back to Antioch to deliver this letter and they choose a couple people to go along with, with Paul and Barnabas. Um, uh, in particular, a man named Judas, who is also called Barsabbas, and Silas. And Silas is likely the individual who is referenced um, uh, fairly frequently in Paul's letters. Paul calls him Silvanus. This is the same guy, um, likely. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, an an interchangeable name. Uh, yeah, we see how Simon is sometimes called Simeon, um, etc. So that's the kind of thing going on there. Uh, and this is the letter that they bring to the church in Antioch and then on to the other churches that have been founded, um, those those where, where Gentiles have are now part of the people of God. Uh, so the letter says this, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, um, uh, greetings. So um, Antioch, of course, is, is where Paul and Barnabas are from. That's that big mixing pot church there that sends them out on their missionary journeys. Uh, Syria is the general area in which, that's in which that, that city is found. And Cilicia is the area just north of that before you're really into like Asia Minor. Uh, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and have troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, so they're referring to those who are trying to um, force circumcision on the Gentile believers, it seemed good to us, having our minds come to one accord, 
to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So this letter number one is uh, is is validating Paul and Barnabas before them, saying that they that we agree with what these men hold. And not only are we writing you this letter, but we're actually sending representatives um, along with them uh, to kind of confirm this, um, that at least being part of the reason why um, Judas and Silas are sent to the uh, to the church in Antioch as well. And uh, um, we've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, they say. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Remember I said yesterday, this is not simply a bunch of guys in a room trying to hammer things out, but the emphasis here is that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church into this decision. This is not, this has binding force, in other words, this is, um, and that's how the churches are to, are to hear this. Um, the, um, here I think we have this unimportant text that just kind of shows us what kind of authority the apostles um, and, and to a lesser extent, the elders at the Church of Jerusalem are, um, are believed and understood to have in the New Testament, that they are not just giving their opinions on matters, they're actually uh, giving uh, God's revelation on things. And so they, and then they recount the, the things that were mentioned that they abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Um, uh, by the way, the, the 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 justification for this, for the the um, uh, these prohibitions, which I've mentioned, that is witness to the Jewish people. I think that kind of thing, those kinds of considerations still stand no matter what people were brought to. Like, you don't want to do things, what whatever people you're on mission to, right, you, you want to avoid doing things that are extra offensive. So if you're a missionary in a Muslim country, for example, you're not going to bring pork there and bacon. Um, I don't think that, like, certainly some of these things have binding... Um, uh, are binding commands on all Christians everywhere, particularly the abstinence from sexual immorality. But the other things here, like the consumption of blood, that's a particularly that's a particular thing for those who are called to reach the Jews. And I don't think that that this is um, to be should be understood as a moral directive to all Christians. Like if you're eating your steak rare or something like that, that um, that's a problem. Or if you're eating you know, meat that is not kosher, as if it's a sin to do that as a Christian. So um, they're sent off, they go to Antioch, they gather the congregation there, deliver the letter, and the church rejoices, finds it in, uh, very encouraging. And uh, Judas and Silas joins in this encouragement. They strengthen the brothers with many words. They spend, and there's another one of these vague um, time references by Luke, some time there, and are sent off in peace back to Jerusalem. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas remain there, um, and uh, and they are teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. So there, there are other leaders in this church besides them. Then they decide to go on what will become known as the second missionary journey. So Paul says to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, 
and see how they are. So they're going to go back up through these regions, through Asia Minor. Uh, this, by the way, is probably are, are probably a lot of the churches that are referenced eventually in Paul's letter um, to the Galatians, this being the um, probably... There's a little bit of debate as to where exactly the cities are that are being addressed there, what he means by Galatia. But um, I think the stronger argument is that it is um, those cities that he's already been to. And uh, and Barnabas wants to bring with them John Mark. John Mark, whose mother um, houses um, a, a, a church in her home in Jerusalem, who had been with them in the initial phases of the first missionary journey, but had then left. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, doesn't want to take him there because um, he had not he had not gone with them to the work. And this is another area that where it's kind of unclear. It's not we can't be sure why Paul didn't want to take take him. Um, uh, perhaps. Um, a, a good explanation for this, I would suggest, is the level of persecution and physical violence that had met them there, that for some reason they are unsure, Paul is unsure of John Mark's ability to kind of um, um, uh, minister in that kind of situation. It doesn't have to be some deep moral divide. He obviously doesn't hate John Mark, um, but he does not want to take him with them. And Paul and Barnabas cannot agree on this, and so they separate. And again, this doesn't have to be a huge dramatic thing like they had a falling out, but if if Barnabas is insisting on bringing John Mark, um, then Paul's not going to... Um, what, what Paul wants to do is different than what, what Barnabas has in mind, clearly. And so... Um, they go to Cyprus, which is the first place that they had gone on the uh, first missionary journey, that is Barnabas and Mark do, and Paul goes north by land into the regions of um, of um, Cilicia and, uh, for, and Syria, and um, Paul has Silas with him, uh, so this is, again, sometime in the future. Um, Silas had returned to Jerusalem. Apparently, he is back now, ready to go on this mission with Paul. And um, they are commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And indeed, they go through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Um, <clears throat> the the other thing that I would just note here, uh, well, two things. First of all, um, they, uh, Paul does mention having done ministry in Cilicia in the book of Galatians. Um, chapter 1, verse 21, where he's kind of talking about his history. And uh, this is just important to recognize because um, Mark doesn't really tell us very much, uh, if anything, about Paul's missionary work in Cilicia. The other thing I want to note is that uh, despite Paul's reluctance to bring John Mark with him, um, in two of his letters... Um, Actually, three of his letters, Paul references Mark as a close companion of him, and so this is not a this is not a permanent separation from Mark. This is not Paul disfellowshipping with him or anything. In fact, we can tell that he does love him and considers him a faithful brother. And so, in Colossians four ten, for example, he says, "Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas." 
concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Here, the additional detail that Barnabas is Mark's cousin, right? Um, in 2 Timothy 4.11, where Paul is um, sorrowful that, of how many at the end of his life have abandoned him, he tells him, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And then rewinding the clock again, in the letter of Philemon, which is written before 2 Timothy, um, he also mentions greetings from Mark, along with Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, his fellow workers. Um, so uh, John Mark continues to play a prominent role in uh, Paul's circles. It's just that here, uh, for a reason that is not entirely clear to us, Paul is uncomfortable bringing him with him. Okay, everybody, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for being with me, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. But until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.